Welcome everyone to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. There's been a lot of buzz going around about my guest today's new book. Um, Sitting next to me is David J. Bell. His new book is called Kill All Your Darlings. There's so much talk about this book that even in previews before the book was released, um, the reviews have been rolling in over and over again, and they're overwhelmingly positive. But let me tell you a little bit about David, just a little bit, because he'll tell us the rest about himself. He is the co-founder and um, director of the MFA program at the college where he teaches. David, welcome to Authors on the Air. It's been a long time since you and I spoke to each other. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, as I said, the, bu- the buzz for Kill All Your Darlings is so strong. Um, I absolutely had to ask you to come on and talk to me about it. Um, would you, first of all, tell us a little bit about what you do in your day job? Because I think it's really important as, it re- as I think it relates a little bit to the book. Yeah, by day and sometimes by night and evening, uh, I'm a I'm an English professor at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I teach creative writing. and We have an MFA program and an undergraduate creative writing program. So I teach a lot of fiction writing classes and other classes. And I've been here. I'll be starting my 14th year at WKU in the fall. Um, I started when I was 20. I came here when I was 20. So, okay. it, yes, it was very, I kid. I was, no, yeah. it works for me. I'm, I'm, I'm going along with whatever you say. You're the guest. Oh, great, great. You, you get to tell me your truth, whatever you want. <laughs> I'd be delusional if I thought that. <laughs> so what I'd like to know is, um, did you know that you always wanted to teach? And did you know you always wanted to teach writing? No, I didn't. I really didn't. Um, when I was young, meaning, you know, high school, whatever, I, I, the idea of being a writer was in the back of my head because I read a lot and I, and I like to read. Um, and so I was slow to come to the point of thinking that I could be a writer as a career. And then the farther I went along, the more I understood that a lot of writers, I, I, the concept of having a day job while I wrote was um, was one I was also slow to figure out. But I, I, <laughs> I, I think like a lot of people when I was young, I had a false notion of what writers' lives were like. I thought that because, you know, when you're in school, you're taught the classics. Yes. And so we read a lot of books by famous people. And so I thought every writer was like Hemingway or Fitzgerald, people like that, who were traipsing around the world and having a great time and drinking champagne. And and I didn't realize that most writers were not doing those things. Most writers were living fairly normal lives and most writers had day jobs. So I was a little slow to understand that. But I guess probably when I was an undergraduate or shortly after being in being an undergraduate, I realized that you could go to graduate school to study writing, and then maybe you could get a job teaching writing while you wrote your books, and that would be a way to support yourself. And so, so that all kind of came to me in my twenties, I guess. When you um, are teaching, are you noticing any flashes of brilliance in some of your students? 
Yeah. So like in, in kill all your darlings, there's a student named Madeline who is a particularly talented writer. And I think that probably over the course of my teaching career, I've had a handful of students like that. I'm talking about undergraduate students who come in and they just seem light years ahead of everybody else. Um, they seem just like they've been writing for many, many years and they have this natural ability. Um, and, and I don't know where that comes from. Most students don't have that. Most students aren't that polished and accomplished. But, but every once in a while, lightning strikes and, and I have had students like that. Have any of your students gone on to publish? Yeah, a lot of them have published poems and stories and essays and things like that. And I have a few students who um, it, it really does take such a long time, usually for people to start publishing. Sure. That um, a couple of students I taught at my very first job many, many years ago have published books. Um, and then, and we've had a graduate student here who's, who's published a few books. Um, so, so yeah, it's happening. And I, I think that means that I'm getting older, that now students who I taught when they were 20 or so are now old enough to be publishing books. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that they at least give you a little credit in their book or at least contact you and say, Hey, you motivated me or inspired me or taught me. You know, that would be really nice. Yeah, the ones I've kept in touch with over the years do say those nice things to oh, me. Wow. I think that they're very appreciative of the whole, wherever I've taught, I think the students tend to be appreciative of the whole department yes. because they get taught by a lot of faculty members, not just creative writing faculty members, but teacher faculty members who teach them literature and things like that. So, so I think they appreciate everything they've learned as they get older and they see how that feeds into what they end up writing. Right, right, right. Well, uh, you know, I, I was joking with you when we were on social media that I had done a little bit of research on you and I had questions. So um, before we talk about the book, because it's really important, um, I, I want to get your thoughts on a few things. Um, someone sent you a photo of Kill All Your Darlings in the airport in Atlanta. Okay, yeah. So... A lot of my writer friends always say, you know, you've made it big when your books are in the airport. <laughs> Is that true? I think you, you should be pretty proud just to publish a book. I mean, I think that is a huge accomplishment. Regard Just to finish a book is a huge accomplishment. Right. So I think people who finish a manuscript and then send it out and get it published, those that they should be thrilled by that. Um, to see a book in a bookstore or in an airport bookstore or someplace like that, yeah, that's always a thrill. I don't think that that's a thrill that really goes away, even when we've seen it a number of times. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the great idea of writing a book layover that was set in an airport. So that was an easy one to get into the airport bookstore. Um, but yeah, it's always a thrill when people see the books in the wild and say like, hey, you know, I saw this in a store or whatever. So yeah, I'm thrilled to see that. So I have a comment from uh, my friend, Rebecca Warner, who's also a writer. She says, hi, David. We're both members of Great Thoughts, Great Readers, been following your success there. 
So that's from Rebecca Warner. That's another great, the thing about people complain a lot about social media, um, justifiably so in some ways, but it's also been a great resource for writers and readers. There are so many um, great groups on Facebook where people talk about books and promote books and share information about books. Um, and that's one of the groups, Great Thoughts, Great Readers. Um, and there are countless numbers of them. So I'm very appreciative of the groups on Facebook and Instagram who talk about the books. We need that. And that's a good thing. Another thing I notice is that you love to write. You write not necessarily only books, but you review in crime reads. You've got a lot of different things going on with your writing and promoting. Um, is writing something you feel is necessary to your everyday life? It's, it's not necessarily something that I do every day, um, but I do think that I've come to realize that even if the things that I was writing, the things I'm writing are not being published, if, I, if that happened, like if, no, if there was no publication, if there was no audience for it, I would still be doing it because it is... It is just part of who I am at this point. Right. So it, so it is an essential part of me, I would say, and something that I feel pretty strongly compelled to do. We have another comment from Nolan Ash, who is a wonderful writer of all of, of everything surrounding New Orleans. She also has um, a couple of podcasts in this network. My favorite is Dead Folks Tales, and it's all it's New Orleans centric. Nola says, I agree. Facebook groups has been such a great place to meet readers and authors. I agree. It is. I I. I like the social media aspect of being able to to talk to people and especially writers that I like. I only came to Facebook late when um when I was able to still friend request all the writers that I liked. Um it was before I had the show and um which I've now had for 10 years, but to me as a avid reader being able to friend request writers it's before we all you know got kind of cynical about all the stuff that was going on on facebook but boy i'm telling you i loved it and writers are my celebrities i, I can barely get an email sent out without screwing it up you know so anybody who can write a book is my hero you know so um anyway i also noted that jody picole tweets you about you she loves your books well, she tweeted about Kill All Your Darlings. I don't know if she's, uh, Jody and I go way back. No, I'm kidding. I don't know her. Um, no, she, she, she's very, clearly she's a very generous person. Yeah. With enormous success. And I think every week, um, on Twitter, she features certain books that she has enjoyed or, or thinks deserve to have attention. And so I was really fortunate that, she tweeted about Kill All Your Darlings the week it came out. And I was just like, I, you know, I was ready to collapse. That's a biggie. I mean, that's a real biggie, isn't it? He's a huge, talented writer. And so that, I think that says a lot about her as a person that she takes the time to do that, to try to showcase other writers. So yeah. Right. I'm right. No, I think it's wonderful. Um, I want to hear about something that you, I read you do. You do something called a pop-up library with a local business. Oh, that was a couple weeks ago. So what here in, I live here in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where the university is. And um, we're good friends with um, some folks who run their own law firm, Cro Crocker Law Firm here in Bowling Green. And so every week, 
at least in the summer, they do a food truck event where um, a food truck comes to their office, to the parking lot of their office, and um, it the proceeds go to a charity, a local charity. So um, the week Kill All Your Darlings came out, they were doing one of their food trucks with cotton barbecue, which is great barbecue. Barbecue is big in Kentucky. You have to accept that fact. Um, and so the proceeds that week went to the Warren County Public Library, and they have a summer pop-up library program. And so I sold books there, and then a portion of the money that I made off of selling books went to the Warren County Public Library, too. So it's a very cool thing. I yeah. mean, it's a very cool thing. Well, I, you know, I... I've been Bowling Green has been really supportive of me. Um, the library has been. Um, there's a Barnes and Noble store here. They have been. All these people and places in Bowling Green have been very supportive of me. So it's just one of those things where I try to do something that helps a good cause. I think that you know it's it, it's just something we can give back to. And obviously, as a writer, I have an in interest in libraries, and I'm happy to do it. Sure. We have another comment from Rick Clifton. He's one of the hosts from Queer Magnolia's podcast. He says, I love pop-up libraries. We need more. I agree with that. Um, the library here where I live in Southwest Florida is a huge resource for, for uh, the community. Every year they hold the Southwest Readers Fest mm -hmm. where all these great readers get to, um, writers get to come and we get to interact with them. Unfortunately, the past few years we haven't been able to do that. It's been virtual. There's nothing like an in, uh, a live in-person event, though. It, you know, it is what it is. Um, I was watching the little video that you and your wife, Molly, do on generally on Thursdays. And um, tell me about that. Uh, you are the Corona folks. You like the Reds and the Bengals. <laughs> so so is that just a way to keep in touch with friends, readers, or, or whoever? And what's the purpose? Well, it started when the pandemic started and um, we were stuck at home like everybody else. Right. Wife Molly McCaffrey is also a writer. Um, and so we just wanted to do something um, creative together. Um, we wanted to do something. I mean, it started with a lot of commentary on the pandemic and how people were coping and how we were coping. Um, and so it wasn't a little bit of it was a way to stay in touch with people that, that you know, stay in touch with friends, tell people. Sure. Um, but also just that we were going through this pandemic and we were having experiences and we were wondering were our experiences the same or similar to what other people were experiencing. So it's, it's really, they're very short videos and we just will ask a question like, Hey, we're experiencing this right now. How, what have you experienced? And then people comment and say like, yeah, I've been through the same thing or no, I've had the exact opposite experience. Um, so yeah, it's just like a, just a fun distraction, you know, and, and a way to talk to people about what we've all been going through for the last year and a half. Yeah, it was really interesting. The last one that I watched was about um, what are the things that you miss or don't miss because of the pandemic. So I was really interested in that. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people said, I'm glad I don't have to hug anymore or I don't want to shake hands or, you know, things like that. Oh, it was really fascinating to hear the divergent uh, answers from your friends and, and readers. It was very interesting. Yeah. And and it's it's interesting that we're kind of going back to a normal life, although maybe not, who knows what's going on. Yeah. So, um, but it is interesting that 
all the things that are a lot of things that we didn't do for a year or a year and a half, then we start to do again. And, and probably everybody is evaluating their priorities and thinking about what's yes. important, what's not important and what can I cut out of my life and what did I miss and what did I not miss? Um, so it's kind of a universal thing. I think everybody's been thinking about recently. So let's talk about Kill All Your Darlings. Um, give us your elevator pitch. Take your time, however long you want to take with it, um, because I have some questions about this. It's a good okay. okay. <laughs> well, Kill All Your Darlings tells the story of Connor Nye, who is a creative writing professor, and he takes a manuscript that was written by one of his students, and he believes the student is dead. He publishes the manuscript under his own name only to find out that there are details in the manuscript that implicate him in an unsolved murder in the college town where he lives. Uh, and then things get worse from there for him. So he has committed plagiarism and he's a murder suspect all at the very beginning of the book. This book is, when I first started reading it, and even just the jacket liner, you know, kind of gives a little synopsis on what the book is. And I found it fascinating because here you are in academia, there are no shortage of stories about professors getting involved with their students and, you know, all kinds of, of hinky things going on like that. And I, so I wondered, did you take this story from anything, not that happened to you, I'm not suggesting that, but that you have heard through the grapevine or throughout your years as a college professor? Because even though I know writers hate to be asked, where did you get your inspiration? But the fact of the matter is, you get your storylines from someplace. Um, is this based in any real story that you know of? I mean, it's not directly based on anything that I saw. It's made up. But I will say that when I was a graduate student many, many thousands of years ago, and then again as a faculty member, I have seen this kind of poor behavior, this kind of predatory behavior on the part of other professors who have taken advantage of the power dynamic that exists between professors and students. And let's face it, there's a huge power dynamic between of professors course. and students. Um, and I've seen that happen. And I've seen the damage that that behavior does. Um, and so I'd wanted for a long time, I'd wanted to write a book. I tried a couple times before to write a book about a professor and um, their relationship with a student, not a romantic relationship, just the teacher-student relationship and a manuscript that was produced by somebody that you know reflected something in the real world and all that, and it didn't get off the ground. When I added the element of the sexual harassment happening in this town right. you know, on this campus, that's when the story worked. So it was those really those two things going hand in hand: the professor who stole the manuscript, and then the way that leads to uncovering some bad behavior that's happening in at the university. Um, that's when I was finally able to write the book and it all made sense to me. So David, let me ask you a question. Who do you consider the protagonist and who do you consider the antagonist in this book? Well, certainly, I mean, it's Connor's story. Connor Nye is the English professor who, um, who has done this at the beginning of the book. He's, he's been living in a fog of grief over the last, five years, his wife and um, his son died in an accident. So he's not been able to write. 
So that is why he is so desperate that he considers stealing this manuscript. That's what drives him to this point. Uh, and I hope, and so he does a horrible thing at the beginning of the book. We know that. Um, he does the worst thing that a professor can do. He steals his students' work. And he does the worst thing a writer can do, which is to steal another writer's work. So uh, I hope the reader hangs with him in the course of the book to find out, um, does he change? Does he grow from this? Does he, does he deal with his issues over the course of the book? In terms of the antagonist, I'll just say that there are, there are a couple of people in the book who Connor comes to realize are up to things that he perhaps did not fully realize. And so Connor has a reckoning with the people around him who he did not realize were as deeply involved in some bad behavior as he might have realized initially. Um, the book is fascinating to me. It's so well written. Um, I, I the way you drop little clues that maybe don't turn out to come to fruition, but it's very twisty, twisty, twisty through the entire book. I'm I was so impressed with it. I usually this is you know and it's an, I guess an average size book. It's 350 pages or so I can get through a book like this in a day it's easy for me because I read so much but I found myself flipping back in the pages and rereading some things just to see if I could pick up little clues along the way the the you know the breadcrumbs you were dropping I did not not really a lot of them and I'm pretty good at figuring out mysteries <laughs> so I want to thank you for such a well-written Twisty Turny book. It's magnificent. And apparently I'm going to put you on the payroll and you can just, <laughs> I don't have to say anything. You just say that. Yeah. You know, and I was reading your reviews in Amazon and it seems like pretty much everyone's saying the same thing that, you know, I didn't see this coming. I didn't see this ending coming. It was a total shock to the people who were reading it. And to me, even though you think you know, and then it turns out you don't, that's the sign of a very well-written book. And so thank you for, you know, my day-long uh, uh, enjoyment of this book. It was magnificent. I have to go back and get some more David Bell books now. I think everybody needs to. There are, there are 10, 10 more that Berkeley has published over the last decade. So everybody should go out. And get as many as they can. Yes, I. Book number thirteen that you've written, though, maybe not all with Berkeley, but book number thirteen, correct? Yeah, I did. I published two books with a small press. Those books are out of print now, but I published two books with a small press before I've done these eleven with Berkeley. So thirteen total. Lucky thirteen, right? Yeah. So, how long after you've finished writing do you give yourself a break? Because I know usually. You turn in a manuscript a year before, so it gets through all the publication process. Have you started or completed, or are you ready for your next book? Are you thinking about it? Well, I mean, what happens? Because I don't imagine, especially with you working full time, and like you said, sometimes on the weekends and, and in the evenings, do you have a dedicated time that you can write? And do you give yourself a break between? the books that you write because they're pretty intense. Well, I, when I'm teaching, it's, it's sometimes difficult to have a dedicated time to write because there are just different demands on my time. And, but fortunately 
I summers I don't have to teach and holiday breaks I don't have to teach. So that that allows me to have a, a little more reliable time, predictable time. Even though I mean every writer knows this. It doesn't matter whether a writer has a day job or not. Right. Life gets in the way. I mean you could right. be leading a life of luxury with no worries and life is going to get in the way. You're going to have family issues or or you're going to need a new roof on your house or whatever. Right. So like, always everybody has issues that they have to deal with. So um so I I try to get a lot done during breaks from teaching and um and then during the academic year I'm trying to write when there's time to write and I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing and doing that. Um, in terms of breaks, I mean there are usually some natural breaks in the process because Editors are very busy too. <laughs> so when I turn a book into my editor, there's always a little bit of time where where I'm waiting to hear back from her because it's shocking, but she has other writers who she cares about besides just me. I would think I would think that the entire machinery of Berkeley Publishing would be focused on me. There you go. <laughs> there's natural there's natural downtime built in, and I think it's good to have that little bit of downtime um, to to step away from things, and then I have to start because I am doing a book a year. I have to start thinking about well, what's the next book going to be, and, and but ideas are always percolating in that way. So so there's let me, let me stop you right there then because that to me is very interesting. Uh, you must have a bunch of these things running around in your head, however you're influenced and find those. How do you know which string, which thread to pull and say, this is the book I want to write next, even though you have all these ideas? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and I think writers probably struggle with that because we, we have a lot of ideas um, and, and sometimes if, if a writer chooses to, to spend a year, nine months or a year or whatever, writing this idea, there's some awareness of, I didn't write those other two, three, four ideas that I could have written. And so it's always, there's always that, I think, in the back of our heads as writers. Um, but my, the best definition I can give is to say that if there's an idea that I cannot stop thinking about, uh -huh. if there's one of those ideas that seems to lodge in my head with greater tenacity than other ideas, then that's probably the one that I want to write about next. Have you ever started writing a book and gotten, you know, pretty far into it, whatever pretty far is in, in your idea and said, no, it's not working. I got to start all over and do something else. I, I probably haven't really done that since I've been having steady writing contracts because so much of the process before I start writing the first draft is about picking the idea and developing the idea and making an outline for the idea. Oh. It would almost be impossible to get to that point and then have cold feet or think it doesn't work. It's, I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but it hasn't happened to me. It will happen that I will start to write the book, you know, start to write, actually write the book and maybe get 10, 15, 20 pages in and realize this is going in the wrong direction and maybe junk it and start over. Um, so that has happened, but I, I haven't gotten deep into something now that I've been on a steady publishing schedule where I've had to, where I feel like I'm way down the wrong road. 
What? Now, now that you said that, it'll probably happen the next time. And, no, I, no, no. and I don't want you to call me and blame me for that, though. I will. I will. <laughs> so what keeps you in the story? Since you have to be writing when time is allotted to you by your home life and your, your collegiate life and so on, how do you maintain your mindset into that story? What is it that you do so that you don't lose the flow of all those beautiful words that came the day before or whenever you last wrote? Yeah, I've heard other writers talk about this. And I think it's just the idea that even if it's a day, like say when I'm teaching and there's a day when I really just don't have the time to actually write anything or if, or if just life has gotten in the way somehow and I don't have the time to actually write anything that day, I will try to just open the file and just look at the, the file, which is not really a manuscript because it's not paper, but to actually just look at that file and to just remind myself where I am or to look at my outline that I make so that, so that it just, it stays in my head a, a little bit, even if I'm not able to write pages or whatever. I think that's a good thing to do. The other thing is just though that I think it's probably true with most writers. When I am writing a book, it's it's very real to me. It's very much in yeah. my head. So even when I'm off doing something else, if I'm taking a walk or if I'm driving down the road or whatever, or for instance, if if I'm in a meeting at my job and people are talking about other stuff, I am thinking about, I'm pretending like I'm listening to the meeting, but <laughs> I'm in my head and I'm thinking like, okay, you know, tomorrow I have to write chapter 20 and this is what's going to happen. So I think there are ways that writers can keep the book alive for themselves, right? even when life is making other demands on them. Is there such a thing as writer's block? And if there is, maybe it's a road, a speed bump, maybe it's a, a full stop sign. How do you overcome it? I think, I mean, I think, I think people get stuck. Mm -hmm. We talk about writer's block sometimes, like it's this, almost like it's a disease. It's this extra, right. like I caught, I caught a cold. I caught, <laughs> right. I don't really think it's that. I think when, when a writer feels stuck, it's probably because of a couple things. Either they have gone down the wrong road with a project, ah. like, like that's their brain saying, your character wouldn't do this. Your character shouldn't get on the bus and go to Miami. Your character should stay in the town and do this. I think either that, or it's probably someone struggling with confidence a little bit and just saying like, I'm afraid to put the words on the page because they might be the wrong words, or I might go down the wrong path with the story, or I'm afraid of what someone's going to say about it. So I don't know that it's, I think it's more, something that comes from inside a lack of confidence going in the wrong direction. And sometimes maybe we do have to take a step back. I don't think it's bad advice to say to someone, if you feel stuck, you know, take a little time away from it, go for a walk, you know, go see a movie, go do whatever. Right. And maybe when you come back later in the day or the next day, you'll see it with a new set of eyes. And I think that's, that probably can usually get people past it. Interesting. Um, are you one who has an eye and ear out for the general public? Are you curious about what people are doing? And are you creating scenarios when you see a little vignette going on? Or that doesn't even occur, occur to you? Oh, no, I'm, I'm fascinated by watching people 
Um, you can't see it, but right here behind me, uh, there's a giant window that's looking out on my street. So I'm always watching my neighbor. Instead of writing, I'm watching my neighbors walk by and, uh, and formulating ideas about what they're doing. Or um, I tell my students this, I say, so like if, if you go to a restaurant or something and right. you know the couple across the way is having an argument or the family is having an argument or something, you ha I give you permission to eavesdrop on that because there might be a story idea there. And then if they catch you, if they come over and they say, hey, what are you eavesdropping on my family argument for? You just say like, no, no, it's okay. I'm a writer. I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be using that from now on because people endlessly fascinate me. So I'm going to use that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, if you, I mean, you know, you could subtly just, you know, sometimes I, Molly and I will be out and like, Someone will be having a weird, interesting conversation in the restaurant or somewhere. And and sometimes we'll just look at each other and and the look that passes is like, Are you hearing this? Yeah, I'm hearing this. And then we just like, oh, okay. And then later on we're like, Can you believe they were talking about blah blah blah? It, it was, yeah. It might go into a story, you never know. So on when you're doing you have an outline that you do, do you ever find that you're partway through your book, maybe halfway, or even three quarters of the way through, and something else comes to you and you it deviates from your outline because you think it's so much better. Do you change it then? Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. I, I The outline is just a guess at where the book is going. It's, a, it's an estimate of where the book is going to go. It's like I say it's like going on a road trip. If you're going to drive from one city to another, um, you plan a route. You know, you say, like, I'm going to take this road and these roads and do this and get there approximately this time. But if you're driving down the road and, like, you see a sign that says, stop here and see the world's largest hedgehog, right? Or the ball of string. Right. You, are, you are free to get off the highway and explore that roadside attraction. Right or that historical marker, uh, or that weird diner, or whatever. So writing is the same way. I think I know where it's going, and usually it, it mostly goes in that direction. Um, but sometimes something pops into my head, and I say, well, no, it's got to go this way. It can't be. A lot of times that happens with the ending of the book. I think I know what the ending is. Right, right. But I'm getting there, and I'm thinking, like, no, no, it can't be this person who did it. It has to be this person and who did it. And this is why, yeah. Yeah, so I think writers have to be open to those surprises that come along. We're almost to the end of our time. I've actually taken you a little bit longer than I wanted to because I'm so fascinated by what you have to say. But we're going to do final five, five quick questions and five quick answers. Okay. So my first question is, do you write sequentially? Chapter one to two to three to four? Yes, I pretty much do. I've known people who say... They write different parts of the story, and I don't know how that works. So usually it's directly in order, yes. Okay. Cats or dogs? Uh, I would probably say, not to offend the cat people, but I would probably say dogs. I grew, I'm sorry, I grew up with dogs, We although we had a cat when I was growing up, but mostly it was dogs. I'm a little allergic to cats, so cats kind of like, I, if I'm around them, I start with the sneezing and everything. I have I have neither right now, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you when you were growing up, did you have a sense little little, not high school and all that? What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, when I was little, little, I was convinced that I was going to be a major league baseball player. Um, and then cruelly, I found out 
that you had to have talent <laughs> in order to be able to do that. So that dream died when I when I played baseball growing up. But no, that was definitely my dream. I, I thought I was going to be playing for the Cincinnati Reds and, you know, winning the World Series and I'd be the hero. And that has not happened. Yet. Yeah, I, I could still, I could be like the world's oldest. It could uh, in your next life, who knows? Yeah. Whose book is on your bookshelf, is on your nightstand right now? Um, there are several. Um, I Several that I've, I see, I always hate answering this question because all my friends are suspense writers and I'm always afraid I'm going to leave someone out. Um, you can only read one book at a time. So who's I can only read one book at a time. Well, actually, um, uh, I'm thinking of maybe going back and reading By the Rivers of Babylon by Nelson DeMille, which I read a long time ago uh, and uh, want to reread because it was such a great book. So that may, may be something like that. That's fantastic. So you reread books that you've read in the past. I do the same thing. I have like maybe 10 or 20 books that have just made such an impression on me. I read them every year just because I enjoy them so much. Um, yeah, well, I find that I... If it's been a quite a while, I don't remember them well enough. I mean, once I get into it, I start to remember stuff. Right, but right. Um, yeah, if something's really good, I think it's worth reading it two or three times. Sure. The final, my final question to you is, David, before we we let you go, is um, you have one piece of advice that you were given that has turned out to be very true for your writing career. What is it? Well, my dad, who was not a writer, um, when I was um, probably 23 or 24 years old, and I was afraid to even say to people that I wanted to be a writer, but like my parents were kind of, you know, having those conversations of like, what are you going to do with your life? Um, and I told him I wanted to be a writer. And my dad said, well, look, if you want to be a writer, sit your butt down and write. Right. And, and I know that's really blunt, simple advice, but, but especially for young writers, I think it's something we need to hear. Like, just, just what are you waiting for? Start to do it. Time is passing. Life is short. If you want to do it, do it. And that was the way I took his advice. As an addendum to that, and this is just a yes or no question, must you be a reader to be a writer? Yes. Yes. Tell us where you are on social media. We've got streaming right now, your website. So we know how to find you there. Where else can we find you on social media and on the interwebs? Facebook, um, Twitter and Instagram. And they're all the handles are at David Bell novels. So uh, that's where I am. Check me out. And uh, I love to hear from people and hear comments. And so go for it. And this is the book, Kill All Your Darlings. It's available everywhere, brick and mortar, online. I absolutely highly recommend this book. It is really one of the best twisty turners that, hi, Vince, uh, Vince Andrews saying hello. It is really one of the best books that I've read in a long time. Probably go on one of my best of lists this year. David Bell, thank you for being with me. And I want to thank all of our listeners and readers for being here today. And thank you, Mom and Dad. See you later. Bye. Thank you.